Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, this is definitely one of the most fascinating podcasts we've ever had at Mind Body Green, where we are going to talk to the world's leading expert on near-death experiences, Dr. Bruce Grison, who has an incredible new book out called After. He also recently appeared in the Netflix docu-series entitled Surviving Death. And when I say world's leading expert, he is literally the guy on near-death experiences. He is a professor at the University of Virginia, where he heads up the Division of Perceptual Studies. It is a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to listen. Bruce, welcome. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be here with you. So as I mentioned before we started recording, I first heard about you from our dear friend, Dr. Roxana Namavar, who studied under you at UVA. And we're going to talk about this in the Division of Perceptual Studies. And when right. she first told me about this, I'm like, that really exists. I remember that from Ghostbusters, <laughs> I think. And Roxana said, you need to watch him in the new Netflix series, Surviving Death. And now he's got an incredible book out called After. So congratulations on the series, on the book. It's amazing. Let's talk about your background and what exactly you do at UVA in the Division of Perceptual Studies. This is a real division. It's legitimate at a real university, (laughs) University of Virginia, and how you became essentially the world's leading authority on near-death experiences. How does that all happen? So let's start there. Well, let me, let me talk about the Division of Perceptual Studies first, since you mentioned that. This was started in 1978. No, I'm sorry, 68. 68, when uh, Chester Carlson, who invented the Xerox machine, left a fortune to UVA to start this division to study mind-brain anomalies and the possibility that something about us may survive bodily death. And Ian Stevenson became the first chair of this division, and it's a division within the Department of Psychiatry in the medical school. And we've been going for over 50 years now, studying a variety of unusual phenomena, one of which is near-death experiences. And so I'll use the short, I've learned the shorthand, NDEs, near-death experiences. Yes. So you are the world's leading expert. And just to provide some context for people listening, how many people have had NDEs and how many people have you studied? It's been over, it's been 40 plus years. Well, the best estimates are that between 10 and 20% of people who have a documented cardiac arrest, their hearts definitely stop, will report near-death experiences. There may be more who don't want to report them, who can't uh, remember them or choose not to share them with us. But that's at least 10 to 20 percent of people who come close to death, which amounts to about 5 percent of the general population. Wow. In the millions. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And how many have you studied at UVA? Well, within my research base, I have slightly more than a thousand. And those are people that I have enough documentation of their condition and their medical data to include in my research. I've talked to many more than that. So just to set the stage here for people, how do you define 
a near-death experience. Let's talk about the definition. I think talking about heart-stopping was helpful, but like, how do you define a near-death experience? How do we qualify? I have not qualified. It's something I, I, one of the accolades I am never looking for in life, an NDE. So how do you define an NDE? NDEs are, are profound experiences that many people have when they come close to death or in fact are pronounced dead. And they include typical features like a sense of leaving the physical body, having an overwhelming sense of peace and well-being. And remember, this is in the context of almost dying, which is usually a terrifying and painful experience. And these experiences are overwhelmed by a sense of well-being and peace. And they often find themselves in some unearthly realm that isn't the normal physical world. And they may encounter other beings there that they think are deceased loved ones or deities. They often go through a life review in which their whole life flashes before them. And at some point, they either decide to come back to life or are told they need to come back. So what's going on in the brain when all this is happening? That's a great question, Jason. It's almost impossible to have neuroimaging of the brain going on when someone's having a near-death experience because you don't have the equipment right there when they have a cardiac arrest. So we don't really know what's going on, but we know generally what happens when people have a cardiac arrest. And within four to five seconds, the brain waves start flattening, and within less than 20 seconds, they're completely flat, which means no electrical activity at all in the brain. So by and large, we can say there's not much of anything going on in the brain during these near-death experiences. Now I should say that not all near-death experiences happen in a cardiac arrest. So you spoke about some of the commonalities, feeling the need to let go, feeling the need to come back. A lot of people will hear hear seeing the light. I have a two-part question. One, I'm curious to hear more of the commonalities in these stories. And I'm also curious to hear, like, what are the, the skeptics of the scientific community say to when something like when someone sees the light or someone has this experience, is it, oh, well, this is what happened when oxygen gets cut, cuts off. I'm curious. So a two-part question, but I'm very curious. What do the skeptics say? And then what do you find? What are some more of the commonalities you've seen? Well, I know what skeptics say because I started out as a skeptic. I was raised in a scientific household where there was never any talk about anything non-material or physical or non-physical or spiritual. It just never came up. So I went through college and medical school with a materialistic mindset that this physical world is all there is. And then when I got to my psychiatric training after I finished medical school, I started coming into contact with patients who were unconscious or in a near-death state and later claimed that they had left their bodies and seen things that they could not possibly have seen. And they described them accurately. The first time I heard this, I thought, nah, they're just crazy. They're just delusional or... When they turned out that they were really describing accurate things, I thought, well, they must be playing a trick on me somehow. And it wasn't until several years later when I met Raymond Moody, who wrote the book Life After Life in 1975, that gave us the name Near-Death Experience and described what these events were like, that I realized these aren't just one or two crazy patients. This is something that happens to millions of people, perfectly normal people all around the world. I couldn't explain it. As a scientist, as a materialistic scientist, it made no sense at all. The only way you can see things out of your body is to leave your body. And that 
just didn't compute with me. As far as I could tell, I was my body. So as a scientist, my obligation was to try to study this, try to understand this. And here I am, 50 years later, still trying to understand it. Now, you asked what, how skeptics try to dismiss these experiences or try to explain them. And I've gone through a whole lot of uh, hypotheses trying to understand these. The most obvious one was lack of oxygen, because no matter how you come close to death, that's one of the final common pathways. However, we know what happens when you get lack of oxygen. You become frightened, confused, belligerent, agitated. That's very much unlike the typical calm, peaceful, consistent near-death experience. In addition, now we have actual research data from the US and from the UK in which people have measured the oxygen levels in patients who are in a near-death state, such as a cardiac arrest. And what they find is that those who have near-death experiences actually have more oxygen to the brain than people who don't report NDEs. Hmm. Likewise, we used to think that it was maybe drugs given to patients in a near-death state. And we find, again, that the more drugs people are given as they approach death, the less likely they are to report a near-death experience. Interesting. Is there, I think, I'll divide the, the skeptic conversation in, in two parts. So one, I think you, you touched on the medical establishment, if you right. will. What about the, the psychology mm-hmm. or psychiatrists? What, what do the shrinks say with regards to these experiences? Well, the first approach by many shrinks is that this is a type of mental illness. So being a psychiatrist myself, I studied that. And I looked at the instance of mental illness among a very large sample of near-death experiencers. And it was the same as it is in the general population, neither more nor less. I also looked at a sample of psychiatric patients and looked at the incidence of near-death experiences among them. And it was the same as it was among normal people who aren't psychiatric patients. So mental illness has nothing to do with NDEs. People who are perfectly normal have them, and people who are crazy have them at about the same rates. So how are people generally affected? It is a near-death experience. They do not die. And reading the book and and, and watching the the docuseries, it it is a very profound experience. Can you talk about how people come out of this and how their life is forever changed? As, As interesting as the experience itself is, to me as a psychiatrist, the most interesting part of it is the way it changes people's lives, because that's my job, trying to help people change their lives. And I have no tools as powerful as a near-death experience. Uh, they typically dramatically change people's attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior forever. I've talked to people in their 90s who had the experience as teenagers, and they say, it's like it happened yesterday. Nothing has changed. And since I've been doing this research for about 50 years now, I've been able to go back and look at people I interviewed back in the 1980s and interview them again now. And we find that they're right. Their after effects have not changed at all. They've not diminished at all. It's a very typical pattern. They typically become much less interested in worldly things, material goods, power, prestige, fame, competition, and much more interested in interpersonal relationships, in caring, in compassion, in altruism, in the more spiritual side of things. And so having been at this for 50 years, how, what did you know back then and compare <laughs> it to what do you know today? Like how has the science evolved, the conversation? I'm curious, like 
that's a long time. Sure, sure. Well, as I said, when I started out, I was a strict materialist, and I, I thought, we'll quickly find the answer to this, because I knew that well, science has all the answers. If not today, then tomorrow. And I found one thing after another in the NDE, and we can talk about the more bizarre things in it, that I just could not explain in any way. And over the decades, I've become more and more comfortable with just not knowing the answer and realizing that there are some things that we are not going to have the answer for. When you talk to near-death experiencers about, and you ask them, what happened to you? The first thing they say is, well, there aren't words to express it. I can't really describe it for you. And then, of course, we say, great, tell me about it. So we know we're making them distorted. But I think that also says that the questions that come up with any death experience probably can't be answered with our limited language and our limited logic. For example, they talk about there being no sense of time in the near-death experience, and we have no way of dealing with that in our language. So you mentioned coming across lots of bizarre. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the most interesting, unique, bizarre NDE you've come across? Does one come to mind? Well, I shouldn't have said bizarre because uh, they're very, actually very common. But two things I think are, are hardest to explain. And one is just the accurate perceptions from an out-of-body perspective. And I'll, I'll give you a dramatic, dramatic example of this. A 55-year-old truck driver who I, I knew had quadruple bypass surgery. And in the middle of the operation, he claims to have left his body. And he was watching the operation going on. And he said he saw his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. And at this point, when I met him, I had been a doctor for maybe 30 years. I'd never heard or seen anything like this. This isn't the kind of thing they show on television shows about doctors. So I thought he was hallucinating from the anesthesia. So when he uh, came back, I, I asked his surgeon, I, I, first I asked the patient for permission to talk to a surgeon about this. And he said, sure, go for it. So I talked to a surgeon, expecting him to dismiss the whole thing. And in fact, the surgeon confirmed everything that the patient had said. His explanation was he had developed this unusual habit of he let his assistant start the operation and he gets gowned and gloved and he's sterile. He walks into the operating room while they're operating. He doesn't want to touch anything that's not in the sterile field. So he puts his hands where he knows they won't touch anything, the palms flat on his chest. And then he points things out with his elbows rather than his fingers so he won't touch anything. And that's exactly what the patient saw. And there's no way he could have done this. And in fact, the surgeon was quite embarrassed when I asked him about it. Wow. So something, you, we always hear the light. Yes. What, what do you make of the light? What do you think the light represents? Is it heaven? Is it... Uh, what do you think the light is? I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Jason, because it's not a light like a electric light bulb or the sun. People describe it as a living entity that is radiating tremendous love and acceptance and uh, warmth, and they feel enveloped by this, and, like it permeates all their being. And they don't know what to call it. Many of them will call it God or Christ, or something else, many don't label it. In fact, those who say God often say, well, this isn't the God I was taught about in church. This is much bigger than that. Or they may say something like, you know, God is just too puny a word for what I experienced. 
But they say, I have to say the word God because I don't know how to talk to you about it. But it's much more than that. But whatever it is, it's something that seems to be alive and encompassing everything. It seems to be all loving, all knowing. The properties we often attribute to God. So what is it? I have no idea. Again, I fall back on the ineffability, the difficulty in putting it into words and say, this is just one of those things that's reported by people all over the world and back through the centuries. And yet we have no way of understanding it here when we're back in our bodies and our brains. So on the flip side, I'm joking, but I'm serious. Anyone ever report experience? And maybe there's someone you spoke with who was a very bad person and they talk about seeing the dark. Well, that's a great question. There are some experiences, near-death experiences, that are unpleasant. Very few. We don't know exactly how many. Most people think between 1% and 5%. But as you might imagine, these experiences are harder to talk about. People are much less willing. So there may be more out there that we don't know about. Now, those experiences, those unpleasant experiences, come in different types. Some are blatant hellish imagery with fire and brimstone and demons, a very small number. And I've only heard those from people who are raised in a tradition that would tell you, expect, lead you to expect that, Roman Catholics or fundamentalist uh, Protestants. I've never heard that from someone who wasn't raised in that kind of a culture. A larger uh, group are people who find themselves in this black void with nothing. It's featureless, no sights, no sounds, and they feel that this is going to be their consciousness just drifting in nothingness for eternity, which for us Americans is a terrifying thought. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. But I've also talked to some people who are raised in Hindu cultures who experienced this black void and felt it was blissful, it was nirvana. So that's an example where the same phenomenon is interpreted differently by different cultures. But I also have to say that the largest group of these unpleasant experiences phenomenologically sound just like the blissful ones, but they're experienced in a terrifying way. People talk about being thrust down a tunnel at breakneck speed towards a brilliant light, and they're terrified of it, and they fight, and they fight against it. And these are people who have trouble letting go. Now, no matter what happens in NDE, you're not in control. And if being in control is very important to you, this is a terrifying experience. And in fact, many of these people, when they fight and fight, finally get exhausted. And as soon as they give up fighting, it becomes a blissful experience. Now you asked if bad people have these. Not really. Now I've talked to people who were uh, convicted murderers serving life in prison, who had near-death experiences after a heart attack in prison. And they had sometimes had blissful experiences. And I've talked to people who seem to lead exemplary lives who had terrifying experiences. And that shouldn't surprise us because we have our writings from Catholic saints through the ages talking about the dark night of the soul, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. It's, it's like in, in Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, you have to go through these dark travails to get to enlightenment at the end. Um, so uh, w with all this research under your belt, so to speak. What do you think happens? Well, what is on the other side? The NDE is a stop because it's near death. It's a stop and you come back. What do you think is on the other side? How, I'm curious, how has it informed your point of view on spirituality, yeah. religion, and so forth? Well, in terms of, of spirituality, I, I think there's definitely a lot more going on than just the physical world. I, I don't see how there's any question about that. What it is, is uh, something that's difficult to say. And talking about 
the other side after death, that's even harder to talk about. As I said, I started off life as a materialist thinking, when you die, that's it. That's the end. And I've been gradually convinced over the decades talking to these people that it's not the end. It's a transition to something else. What else is it? I'm not sure, because as I said, they rely on whatever metaphors they have to describe this ineffable experience. Our example is the tunnel. People here and all over the world will talk about going through a long, dark, enclosed area to get from the physical world to the other realm. And here in the US, they call it a tunnel. I've talked to people in less developed countries where there aren't a lot of tunnels, and they'll say, I went into a cave, or I fell into a well, or the calyx of a flower. One fellow I interviewed here, who was a truck driver, said, then I got sucked into this tailpipe. So it's, you know, they all describe the long, dark, enclosed space, but they give it their own interpretation. And it's that way with the afterlife also. Some people describe it in heavenly terms. Some people describe it in pastoral terms, a beautiful garden or a, a lush forest. But most say, I can't describe it. It didn't have features. It had a feeling. I felt loved and I felt warm and I felt comforted and I was not alone but they don't put features on it that would describe it. So I have no idea what's going to happen after death, but I will not be surprised if something happens. So safe to say that the vast majority of us will not experience an NDE. So I'm curious, what do you want if everyone who's listening, who, who, who will be part of that, that, that larger group, knock on wood, to take from this learning, to take from NDE. Yeah. Well, the most consistent after effect that near-death experiences have is a lack of any fear of death or dying. And that seems to be consistent no matter what happens in your near-death experience. Uh, they say that I died. I was there without my body, without my identifying features, without my masculinity, my age, my political affiliation, but you know, I had nothing but my entity. And I was better off there than I was here. So I'm not afraid of doing it again. And people say that consistently from all over the world, that the near-death experience leads you to a place that is not something to be feared, not something to be afraid of. Death is not something to be fought against or feared. Now, as a psychiatrist, what's going on in my mind, isn't that going to make people suicidal? because I know that fear of death stops a lot of people from trying to kill themselves. So of course, being a scientist, I did a study of this. And I interviewed people who had made suicide attempts and then had a near-death experience as a result of that attempt and compared them to people who made suicide attempts and didn't have NDEs. And the ones who had NDEs were no longer suicidal after the event. And when I asked them why, they said things like, I still have the same problems that made me want to end my life, but now I see them in a different perspective. Now I know that I'm not just this bag of skin. I'm something much greater than that. I'm part of something that's part of the whole universe. And my personal problems don't seem as important anymore. They're not something to be run away from. They're something to be grappled with and learned from. And they see a sense of, of meaning and purpose in their lives that they didn't see before. The bottom line is that when you lose your fear of death, you also lose your fear of living to the fullest because you're not afraid of taking risks. You have nothing to lose. So you're more likely to get 
fully engaged in life and finding it much more meaningful and fulfilling. So it sounds like your hope in, in educating people around NDEs and some of the incredible experiences you've documented so well in the book is that your hope is that people have more meaning, purpose, yes. fulfillment in, yes. in their lives, yes. which is, those are some things that we desperately need right now in 2021. Right. right. You know, and, and what near-death experiences say of, of the lessons are that they learn that we're all in this together that what you do to someone else, you're actually doing to yourself. And you need to treat other people the way you want to be treated. And of course, the skeptics say, ah, that's the just age-old cliche of the golden rule. Well, yes, it is. Every religion has some variant of the golden rule in it. Why? Because that's the universal. And the ears will say, now the golden rule is no longer a goal to be striven for. Now I know it's a law of the universe. This is the way it works. So what's the biggest misconception you think there is currently around NDEs? Well, I, I think it might be that these are just expectation. This is what you think is going to happen, so you imagine it. You imagine seeing a deceased loved one and you conjure it up. Or you imagine going to heaven and seeing God, so you imagine that. And that certainly seemed plausible to me at first, but we do have lots of examples of people who had experiences that directly contradicted their beliefs. For example, I've got uh, records from several atheists who found themselves confronted with what they call a deity, and they have no explanation for that. They're just stunned by it, but they say, I can't deny what happened to me. Furthermore, we went back to our records and we found that we had accounts that were developed in the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA in the 1960s, 10, 15 years before Raymond Moody published his book, giving us the name Near-Death Experience and telling us what they consist of. So these are accounts collected before anyone knew about NDEs, but they are accounts that we now recognize in retrospect as being just like the current near-death experiences. And I looked at two dozen of those that we had the most information about and compared them with two dozen cases we've collected recently matched by age, gender, religion, religiosity, how close they came to death, how they came to death. And what we found was that there was no difference between the accounts we collected back in the 1960s and the ones we're, they were collecting now in the 21st century. So knowing what Moody said was an NDE does not change what you report. They seem to be independent of your expectations. Let me give you a more concrete example of expectation. Many people in a near-death experience talk about meeting deceased loved ones. And those are easy to dismiss as expectation, wishful thinking. However, we have a number of well-documented cases now of people who saw someone who was dead who they didn't know had died. And that kind of rules out the possibility of expectation or wishful thinking. Let me give you an example. There's a 25-year-old technical engineer who had severe pneumonia and was hospitalized. This is back in the 70s in South Africa where he lived. And he was then in an oxygen tent, that's what they used those days, and he was having repeated respiratory arrests where he couldn't breathe. And he had to be resuscitated repeatedly. He had one favorite nurse named Anita who used to look forward to coming to, to work with him and he would flirt with her. And one day she told him that she was gonna be away for a long weekend. So he said goodbye to her, wished her well, she left for the weekend. Then he had another respiratory arrest and this time had a near-death experience. 
And in his NDE, he was in a lush garden, and he saw Anita walking towards him. She was stunned. He said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, this is where I am now. I'm staying here, but you have to go back. And I want you to tell my parents that I love them very much, and I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. He was then resuscitated, and when he woke up, he remembered the experience, and he told the first nurse that he saw about it. And she started crying and then ran out of the room. It turned out that this girl, Anita, the nurse, had taken the weekend off for her 21st birthday. And her parents had come down from the country to see her. And they gave her, they surprised her with a red MGB for her birthday. She got excited, jumped in the car, took off down a hill, lost control of the car, crashed into a telephone pole, and died instantly, a few hours before the patient's near-death experience. He had no way of knowing that she had died, and certainly no way of knowing how she died, and yet he did. And we have case after case of this. We have cases going back, Pliny the Elder wrote about this in the first century AD. And we have cases documented throughout the ages of people who saw dead people who they didn't know were dead. Wow, I, I have chills listening to that one, listening to you hear, tell that story. And you lead me to my next question. Some of us don't necessarily fear death, but we, we fear losing people or we've lost. Yes. We've lost yes. people in our lives who are near and dear to our hearts. Uh, no one's immune to that. How has your study of NDEs informed in the grieving process for you? Well, no matter what you think is going to happen after death, no matter how well off you think your deceased loved ones are, there is that loss, and there's no getting around that. Even people who have had near-death experience say, I still grieve when I lose someone close to me because the immediate bond there has been changed. They may believe that they'll see them again someday, but right now you don't have them with you every day. They're just there in your hearts and your memory, but they're not here face to face. And that's a loss you can't get around. But do you, do you truly believe that there is truth that they will meet again when you lose someone? I'm curious personally, do you believe that when you've lost a loved one, do you believe I will, I will see this person again on the other side, if you will? Well, a lot of near-death experiences report that they leave this, other, this realm, go to another realm where they encounter the deceased loved one, and sometimes they describe it physically looking like the loved one. And sometimes they say, no, but I just knew her essence, that was her. So I think we're again talking with, how do you exp explain this to yourself or to other people when you're back here in this physical brain with limited language and limited logic? So I think that we do survive death in some form. Our consciousness persists. And when I die, I expect that I probably will be in the same condition as the consciousness of other people that I've lost. Whether we'll recognize them as being discrete entities, I don't know. We may just be part of the whole, it's like a wave in an ocean. It exists for a certain part of time and it disappears, but it's always part of the same ocean. So when they dissolve back into the ocean, do you recognize other waves as being discrete waves or is it just part of the whole consciousness? I don't know. Hmm. So going back to, you know, for, for someone to experience an NDE, they have to come back. They have to survive it. Yes. 
I'm curious, I, this may sound funny, but I'm serious. For someone listening, I'm sure there are not many people, but there might be someone listening who might have an NDE. Right. What advice would you have for someone who would want to come out of it? Because we only know, like, are there commonalities toward the end of the NDE? Some, is it, is it you know, letting go? Is it fighting to get back? Like, wh what happens at the end? Is there a common thread in the NDE toward the end where someone feels like they're at a crossroads and they come back? We don't know about the people who don't come back because you can't That's talk right. to them, obviously. But like, is there, a, in your estimate, is there a common thread that people make some sort of conscious decision or something toward, uh, toward the end. Right. So tips for anyone who might experience an NDE in their lifetime. Well, there isn't one common thread. Many experiencers say, at one point, I realized I had something back here that I needed to do. I wasn't finished with my work. And I decided I need to come back and finish this. Other people say, I wanted to stay there. But I was told, it's not your time. You need to go back. And I was sent back more or less against my will. And some people just find themselves suddenly back here without any decision being made as far as they can tell. So there's no consistent pattern to that. To me, hearing you speak, purpose with, with a capital P is just so yes. critical. I've asked people, I've had so many doctors, PhDs, nutritionists on this podcast, and sometimes we'll even get into uh, really specific conversations. For example, there are a pair of doctors who are very focused on, on brain health and dementia and Alzheimer's and what we can do in terms of diet, lifestyle. And I said, what's the number one thing you can do? And they said, purpose. It wasn't, it wasn't kale. It was purpose. And, if, and I'm hearing purpose. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, near-death experiences consistently say that this is not just a clockwork universe. There's meaning and purpose to everything that happens. And so it, it's 2021, it's an exciting year. I'm an optimist. Where, <laughs> where do you think you, you are the world's leading expert? You are a pioneer in this field. Where, where do you think the research is going? The science is going? What are we going to know about NDEs a, a, a couple years from now, 10 years from now? I'm curious if there's any interesting data that you're, you're paying attention to. Like, what's the future of this field? Yeah, well, that's a, a great question, Jason. Uh, yeah, I'm basically a doctor, a psychiatrist. My life is helping people. So my major interest in near-death experiences is how it changes people's lives and how to help people learn from their experience and grow from it. Fortunately, there are other people of the next generation who are already taking up the, the banner and studying near-death experience who have other backgrounds, other areas of expertise, and they're taking the research in very different directions. Some are looking at the neurophysiology, the neurochemistry. Some people are looking at the cross-cultural uh, comparisons. Some people are looking at the connections with psychedelic drug trips, with other mystical traditions going into areas that I wouldn't have the expertise or the interest to pursue. So I think I have no idea where it's going in the future, but I'm going to continue pursuing how to help people who have these experiences. It's not the after effects aren't always pleasant for people. Imagine if you come back to a life where your former career doesn't make sense to you anymore, or your former marriage doesn't make sense to you anymore. Now I've talked to many people who could not go back to the lifestyles they had before. One fellow who was a career Marine 
who was shot in the field and had bullet fragments all over his lungs, and he had to have an operation to you know, clear some of the, the shrapnel out. And during the operation, he had a near-death experience. And when he came out of that experience, he couldn't shoot his gun. He couldn't tolerate violence. And this is a career Marine. So his life was over as far as you could tell. He ended up coming back from the state to the States, leaving the Marines and becoming a medical technician. I've got story after story like that. A policeman who had a near-death experience and, again, couldn't stand violence, ended up retraining to become a high school teacher. A homeless drug addict who had a near-death experience when he was withdrawing in jail. And I, I met him about 30 years after that, and he said, I have not had an urge to have a drug in the last 30 years since that experience. It totally changed my life, gave me a meaning to live. So a lot of great examples of people who completely changed their lives. I'm curious, in all of your years of research, have you ever experienced doubts to what you were doing and the research? <laughs> all the time. You know, a lot of my colleagues, doctors like everybody else, some love this work, they think it's fascinating, others think it's a waste of time. And I've had my doubts about whether I'm getting sucked down the rabbit hole and, and I really should spend my time studying something more concrete. And that never completely goes away. The majority of my thoughts are about how exciting this is and how it's really helping people. Something you, you mentioned earlier, you talked about that there, there's almost this tension. There's the science, there's the research, and then there's the unknown. And there's, there's an inherent tension there. And it seems the scientific community doesn't like anything that's unknown. And I get it. How do you think that's a, a problem? I don't think that's a problem. No, no. I, I So like that the scientific community doesn't like unloved. Do you think that's a problem? I'm not even sure that's true. There are certainly a lot of scientists that don't like the unknown. But I think there are also a lot of scientists who realize that's where the scientific discoveries are. If we study things we already understand pretty well, you make additional small incremental advances. If you study something we can't explain at all, that's where the major advances in science are. So the true pioneers in science go towards the anomalies we can't explain. And that's where I think we make the big leaps in, in understanding the, the universe. I agree. I'm curious, what is it with us mere mortals that we have to have NDEs to find oh. meaning, purpose, significance a great <laughs> in our life? Like, what do you think, what are we doing wrong? Well, you know, I think... There are cultures in which a sense of meaning and purpose is part of what you're raised with. It's more associated with Eastern religions nowadays, but back in ancient times, that was a part of everyone's life. There was a mystical part of the world that was just accepted as that's part of the world. And for the last three, four hundred years, we have excised that from Western society. And we've become like a mechanistic clockwork universe. And people think about human beings as being biological machines and our brains as being computers. And that's taken all the mystery out of it. And it's also stopped us from understanding how it works because we're eliminating the essential part of it. So I think we've done that to ourselves. We've been entranced by the amazing success of physical science in explaining a lot of things about the physical world. But we shouldn't limit it to that because the scientific methods of rigorous observation and experimentation can apply just as well to the non-physical things if we try it. 
So my last question, as I mentioned, I'm an optimist. It's, it's February, 2021. It's going to be, it's going to be a great year. We got off <laughs> to a rough start, but I'm, I am optimistic. What do you hope for in 21? What, what gets you excited about this year? Well, we've come through a pretty dark period. And I think it's not going to go away fast in terms of the, the pandemic and, and some of the political division in this country. That's actually all over the world, this same type of political division. That's not going to go away quickly. But I think by studying things like near-death experiences and the spiritual aspect of our being, we can come to terms with something greater than these petty physical issues we have and realize that there's a lot more going on than just the physical problems, that there is spiritual growth that can occur as a result, in fact, of these physical problems. And in that sense, I share your optimism that we are making progress with this. Amen. We will <laughs> close there. Dr. Bruce Grayson, congratulations, an incredible book after everyone pick it up and definitely watch the Netflix series as well. Thank you so much. 